When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. You're after something. Is it revenge? Money? Or is it something else? Amelia Clark there in the trailer for one of the most anticipated films of summer, Solo, A Star Wars Story, which opens Memorial Day weekend. Clark's got questions. Oh, oh, yes, Josh, you've got a question. I was just wondering, who shot first? How dare you? We'll see if we get an answer to that during this week's top five questions about the summer movie season. Plus, thoughts on the new films The Writer and You Were Never Really Here with Joaquin Phoenix. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. It's been a few years since summer had any kind of exclusive on movie spectacle. It's just May, and we've probably already seen the two biggest moneymakers of 2018, Marvel's Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War. What's left to see then this summer, Josh? Some dino carnage in Jurassic World, Mm -hmm. Han Solo and Lando Calrissian taking their first spin in the Millennium Falcon in Solo, Tom Cruise even better. Rebecca Ferguson, yes, returning for another Mission Impossible. We've got superhero sequels, Deadpool 2, The Incredibles 2, Ant-Man and the Wasp, maybe a little raunchy comedy thrown in, a couple of horror flicks, and there's your summer. Did I miss anything? I think you got it covered. I mean, they might let a documentary squeeze in there maybe on a screen maybe. or two, but otherwise that's pretty much it. Though let's be honest, that's pretty much every kind of movie that won't get mentioned in this week's Film Spotting Top 5. It's our summer movie preview, and our twist on it is our questions about the summer movie season. Later in the show, we will get to some thoughts on a couple of acclaimed new releases, The Writer, our second horse movie in, what, three weeks here on the show, and Joaquin Phoenix and Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. But we are going to start the show with our top five. It's our summer movie preview. We have been doing this for at least a couple of years now. Our previews in the form of questions. What's on our mind about the movies ahead? And is it fair to say, like most previews we do, whether it's the summer or the year as a whole, we aren't typically picking movies or going with questions about movies that are the big tentpole pictures, the one everybody's talking about, the solos of the world, Josh. I don't have solo here, but I do have a question about one of those you mentioned. Oh, really? Just one of them. Okay. Yeah, but I'm going to start with something pretty obscure here at the top. Okay, hit us. It's that documentary that I was referencing. 
I'm wondering, will Won't You Be My Neighbor reveal <laughs> that Fred Rogers was actually a monster? Adam, if I had to bet it's a great question. on one male to be left standing with a decent reputation by the end of 2018. Fair enough. I'm not going to bet on me. I'm not going to bet on you. I'm not going to bet on the Pope. I'm betting on Fred Rogers, who, of course, died in 2003, but is back in the spotlight with this upcoming documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? A staple from my childhood, Rogers was the Presbyterian minister turned loving, kindly host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on PBS, a kid's show that... Nowadays, it just seems too quiet, gentle, wise, and universally beloved to be true. The documentary is directed by Morgan Neville of The Music of Strangers and Best of Enemies, and it's billed as an exploration of the life lessons and legacy of the iconic children's television host. So this hardly promises to be a warts and all portrayal. Normally, I would want something. There are no warts. There are (laughs) no warts. Right? I mean, I'd normally want something more nuanced out of a documentary. But really, after almost a year now of public figures, including ones I've admired, being unmasked as ugly hypocrites, a peon to a beloved childhood model sounds kind of good. Yeah. So won't you be my neighbor? That's coming out June 8th. We do not coordinate these top fives ahead of time. Sometime there is overlap. There just might be overlap with that pick, Josh. But it is not my number five. Did you know that they're remaking Superfly? We're going to have – we should have coordinated. <laughs> we really should have. I was afraid of this, actually. My number five question of this summer movie season is, what will work most for or against Superfly? It's updated setting, soundtrack, or slant. The director here is Julian Christian Lutz, though I understand he goes by a much hipper name, Director X. Yes. And he is known for making great videos for artists like Drake and Rihanna and this is a remake of the Gordon Parks crime drama that was a seminal black exploitation film about a drug dealer in Harlem named Youngblood Priest who needs one more score and then that's it. He's going to get out of the life for good. Now, we're biased here in terms of thinking about <laughs> this remake and going in without judging it at all because we did a black exploitation marathon in 2012 on the show. We called the awards the Mayfields. After Curtis Mayfield, who wrote the original Superfly music, my pick for best soundtrack, lead performance, Ron O'Neill, and best picture went to Superfly. And you also awarded your Mayfield for best lead performance and picture and also supporting performance, Carl Lee, to Superfly. And we did not too long ago a top five films of 1972 here on the show. We both had it in our top five. In fact, we both had it in our top three. So the setting for this version of Superfly is Atlanta, which is the epicenter now of black music and culture. The soundtrack, we've had that great Curtis Mayfield soul music replaced by hip-hop, Future doing the music, or at least most of the music on the soundtrack. And then we have its slant or its overall point of view. And I went back and looked at my notes for Superfly, that glowing review we had of Superfly. And I said the movie gets to have its cake and eat it too, because it gives us this black hero who is a coke dealer, a pimp. He is making money off of the vices of his own people. And he gets to have some of those cool elements of a character like Shaft, where he's tough and he's always one step ahead, it seems. So he's smart and he's cool at the same time. But there is this social commentary of a character who ultimately does come to realize that he was dealt a certain hand And now he's got to try to break away from it. The key line for me of the movie when we talked about it was when he's talking to a character named Georgia and he says this is why he's getting out of the life. It's about having a choice, being able to decide what it is I want 
buy me some time just to be free. So it glamorized the life to an extent, but was also pretty gritty and somber. There was this sense of futility at its core. And here again, we're only going off of the trailer. We know it's going to heavily showcase the, the excitement of the life. We get the cars, the houses, the women, the style. And I even found a teaser trailer online today, Josh, where it included some snippets with people who worked on the film or were involved in some way. And the rapper Big Boy laughs at one point. He does laugh, but he says, I hope you all don't create a new generation of pimps. I mean, I'm sure that was a concern, and that was actually an outcome of the original Superfly 2, but there's a reason why he says that. Certainly, I think there is anyway, based on what I saw in the trailer. And you watch this new trailer, and all it emphasizes, and there's a line at the end of it that really stood out to me. When it comes easy, it's keeping it, that's all. I will never stop the bullet. No car can outrun fate. But if you can play the game by your own rules and win, that's Superfly. You can walk on me. So in that line, we get a little bit of that sense of futility. Absolutely. Power never stopping a bullet no car being able to outrun fate, but that idea of playing the game by your own rules and having a choice, that also seems reminiscent of the original Superfly, but the idea of winning, just that little bit of, you know what, I'm going to play the game my way and I'm going to win at it is something that I wonder if this movie is going to be a marked departure from the original Superfly. And in some ways I welcome that because I wouldn't want it to be a straight-up remake of the original, and it does need to reflect the times in which it was made. But that, for me, really does get to the core of what I'm concerned about or what I question about this remake is what is that slant ultimately going to be? Yeah, I had this on my list, too, as my number three question. I'll just move it to number four so we can get to it now. And I had a more generic question. Will Superfly justify remaking a black exploitation masterpiece? Because mm-hmm. I think we both agree mm-hmm. that that is what it is for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, this is Gordon Parks Jr.'s 1972 classic. And your description of it is right. The layers going on here. I talk about it being about the dead end despair of ghetto life, where mm-hmm. this false independence of a criminal enterprise is really just another form of enslavement. And I think that's where the original movie leaves us. Who knows if that's what we're going to get here. It's hard to tell from the sales pitch you get in a trailer. That's absolutely true. Apparently, there was a 1990 sequel to Superfly, Unseen by Me, The Return of Superfly. Doesn't really have much of a reputation, so we'll see if this is able to carve out something more. Director X, I, I, I don't know. I mean, gives me little shades of Mick G. Remember Mick G? <laughs> when yes. a director gives themselves a name like that, but we'll see. He certainly has, you know, a track record of some pretty outstanding music videos and definitely artists he's worked with. So I think, you know, the reason to give this movie a shot, part of that black exploitation marathon was reconfiguring expectations, right? Discovering that what many had written off is these cheapo exploitation pictures were not just of extreme social value. I think we both knew that going in, right? That there was definite social value in this movement, in this genre, but also coming to see for the ones we saw for the first time that they were serious works of art. So mm-hmm. with that context, with that history, with that tradition, uh, it'd be foolish not to give this Superfly remake a, a shot. It's going to be in theaters on June 15. Okay, we get to my number four, and hopefully this is the end of our overlapping. Josh, has Mr. Rogers' time come or is this the time for Mr. Rogers? 
the movie, yes, is Won't You Be My Neighbor? And we'll see if you can parse through my question. I'll try to explain it here. I should note that Andy Mitchell, our production assistant, who helped us with this top five, as he has been with a bunch of recent top fives, and he gave us some of his questions, and I hope to share some of those during our honorable mentions. His query about this film was, between this and the recently announced biopic starring Tom Hanks, You Are My Friend, can Mr. Rogers' small screen wonder be expanded and heightened on the big screen? I think that's a great question as well. For me, it's more about, I guess, that perspective again with this film and what we are ultimately going to draw from it as a collective audience. He mentions the Tom Hanks biopic that's also coming out. That's key to my question, because even though there isn't a release date set for that that I'm aware of, the fact that we're getting a documentary and a narrative version roughly at the same time, they're both kind of in production or coming out and in production, it it suggests something. And that's really at the core of my question. The biopic is inspired by a real-life friendship between Fred Rogers and a journalist whose name, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, it's Tom Junod, J-U-N-O-D. And it's based on real life, where he was this journalist who got an assignment to write this piece about him and was, according to the description I'm looking at, Josh, transformed along the way. That sounds like it could be pretty cheesy, but I have a ton of hope for it. You know why? Guess who the director is? Tell me. Film spotting Golden Brick nominee for Diary of a Teenage Girl, Marielle Heller. Really? Yeah. So she's going to bring a little bit of edge, hopefully, to the production, as much edge as you can to a movie about Mr. Rogers, who died in 2003. He was 75 years old. His show ran from 1968 to 2001. So anyone of a certain age, and I did not take the time to do the math earlier today, but I'm sure we could pinpoint it. Anyone of a certain age grew up watching his show every day. That's me. I know it was mm-hmm. you, Josh. It's been 15 years since he died. It seems about the right time where we'd go back and consider him or reconsider him, which gets at the heart of your question, Josh, and what he meant to our culture. He was this major TV figure. So it really isn't a surprise to me that a doc and a narrative version of his story is coming out. But maybe there is more. And if you look at the comments Mariel Heller made when it was announced that she was going to helm this biopic, she said this. The script knocked me out with its message of kindness and its exploration of the human spirit. As a mother, I am so inspired by the teachings of Fred Rogers, and as a human, I am in awe of his life's work. I can't wait to bring his story to the public and be part of such a thoughtful, smart group of people who are all coming together to make this film, which truly feels to me like an antidote to our very fractured culture. Yeah, that's it, right? That's that, it. That's why this sounds good we rather than pandering. Movie. Yeah. Like, I think we truly, as a culture, need Mr. Rogers and need these movies in our lives right now. The director, did you touch on Morgan Neville very much at all? I just a, mentioned him in his credits. Okay, so he has done several documentaries, but his last three that I've seen, Keith Richards, Under the Influence, Best of Enemies, Buckley versus Vidal, and 20 Feet from Stardom, which won the Oscar in 2014 about backup singers. Those are all pretty good movies, so I expect he'll bring the same level of quality to this. I threw out the word reconsider, which again, you phrased in a much more provocative way than I did. But with a documentary like this, can we expect any kind of reconsideration? What would we possibly learn about Fred Rogers that isn't there on the surface or at least isn't part of our larger perception of him culturally? Are there going to be any skeletons in the closet that come out? Maybe there won't be, Josh, but what surprised me watching the trailer is I learned that at least according to some of the people talking about him, he was topical. He was timely. One of those talking heads describes him as radical even. I wouldn't thought of any of that 
as being connected to Mr. Rogers in any way based on my viewing experience with him from ages three to seven or eight. And maybe he did evolve. Maybe it was more reflective of the time that those people in the documentary are referencing, which I think is the late 60s. We're coming out of Vietnam, the early 70s. He's talking about divorce and some other topics that I don't know if he talked about as much. I'm guessing, though, he did. I'm guessing he always found a way to weave in some of these harder subjects for kids to process into his teachings and into his entertaining, and I just don't really remember it. So I'm looking forward to discovering that in this documentary. It comes out June 8th. A neighborhood was a place where, at times, that you felt worried, scared, unsafe, would take care of you. He had a singular vision of kindness and love. Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all relationships, love or the lack of it. Part of it might be, when you mention the talking heads, is hearing others, especially if they speak to it eloquently, discuss why he was so moving to them and helping all of us who maybe have never sat down as adults and process that ourselves and asked ourselves that. We know how crucial he was to maybe starting to understand the adult world, but we never really gave it much thought. So that could be an appeal to the documentary too, is just going through that process vicariously with the people on screen. Okay. Your number three question about the summer movie Okay. So this one gets bumped down to number three. I'm a little less excited about this than Superfly, but still interesting. Are Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson the comedy team we never knew we needed? (laughs) By some strange alignment of the Hollywood stars, we're going to get Rebel Wilson, the wild card Australian comedian of the Pitch Perfect films, Bridesmaids, How to Be Single, teaming up with Hathaway, the Oscar-winning dramatic actress and comedian of, I guess, The Intern and and maybe Get Smart. Remember Get Smart? She's done a couple romantic comedies, too. She's hilarious in Les Mis. Yes. (laughs) Very funny. They're peering up. Wilson and Hathaway are for The Hustle, which, and here's the more promising part for me, is a remake of the 1988 comedy Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Steve Martin and Michael Caine. I've never seen it. You've never seen that? No. I thought for sure that would have been an HBO staple of Adam's It was on all the time. And I don't know why. I was never compelled to keep watching. You were too busy watching Kroll. I was, yeah. In Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, uh, they play two men in a competition to swindle a young American heiress on the French Riviera. That itself was a remake of 1964's Bedtime Story with David Niven and Marlon Brando. Okay, I haven't seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels since 88, but I do remember thinking it was quite hilarious when I watched it at a neighbor's house as a kid. That one was directed by Frank Oz. The Hustles directed by Chris Addison, who spent a number of years on my beloved Veep. A Hollywood Reporter story said that in addition to the gender switch here in The Hustle, it's going to have Hathaway and Wilson looking to con a 20-something tech billionaire. So... Dumb fun or perhaps something more biting and timely. The original title was Nasty Women, riffing on the phrase Donald Trump used during the 2016 election. So we'll find out if it's either or both of those things when it comes out on June 29. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned the Pope. Was that intentional? I did. (laughs) Are we leading to more overlap? No. Okay, good. We're not. Will the director, this is my number three question, will the director who made the best movie about angels which is Wings of Desire, make an equally great movie about God's representative on Earth. The movie, Pope Francis, a man of his word, the director of this documentary, is Vim Vendors. And I was thinking about this today. I am not Catholic, though I'm married to a Catholic, and I grew up around 
many Catholics. I remember all of my best friends going to CCD class every Wednesday night back in Grinnell, Iowa. So I was aware, and most of our adult lives, Josh, we spent being aware of who John Paul II was. And then, of course, we had Pope Benedict, and I am not here at all equipped to break down their legacies and their similarities or their differences, nor do we have the time. But surely I wasn't the only kid, let's say anyway, who perceived them as representing a certain type of stodgy piety, an old-fashioned approach to faith and authority. They were authority figures and really kind of these stern figures, and that was about it. And again, probably not accurate, but that was my perception as a kid. And people like me who didn't grow up with religion in their lives, but then went on to college and studied it and studied it a lot. I was one class away from a religious studies major, and that's not a brag. I'm saying it just to point out that I really did get into the study of religion in college. And then you saw the light. Exactly. And moved on. <laughs> but during that process, I did become fascinated by the message of Jesus. It's consistent, according to people like me, misunderstanding and misapplication and our recognition of him as an iconoclast who challenged prevailing wisdom and supported the outcasts of society. I never honestly imagined in my lifetime that we would see a pope who seemed to be, and here's that word again we used in reference to Fred Rogers, radical. And then Pope Francis came along. So that's on my mind when I think about the Pope and I think about this movie. And the other thing on my mind is that I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who viewed the Pope always as completely unapproachable. I know people, of course, who went and saw him at a football stadium somewhere and who heard him perform mass. Or maybe they went to Vatican City and were in the crowd somewhere. But did anyone who's listening to this ever feel like they had a personal connection to the Pope? Did you see him as someone you could engage in a dialogue with about anything, much less faith? I don't think so. He was God's emissary. He was sharing his wisdom. He was guiding us, but it wasn't a two-way conversation. And then I read a description of this movie by Ann Thompson in IndieWire's summer movie preview, and I will link to it in our show notes at filmspotting.net. She says that vendors devised a direct-to-camera visual and narrative concept to engage the audience face-to-face with the Pope, creating a dialogue between him and a cross-section of humanity as he responds to questions from farmers, workers, refugees, children, the elderly, prison inmates, and those who live in favelas and migrant camps. Intended as a personal journey with the Pope rather than a biography, the movie films Pope Francis addressing his audience on the big subjects, life, death, social justice, immigration, ecology, wealth, inequality, materialism, and the role of the family. So I'm really curious to see that dialogue and frankly to engage in and be part of that conversation with the Pope, at least through the vehicle here, through cinema and through Vin Vendors, who I'm going to lose some cinephile cred here. But another reason why I'm really intrigued by this movie is I think I've always thought of myself as more of a Vim Vendors aficionado than I actually am. I mean, I've seen his documentary Pina, and of course, I do love Wings of Desire, and I love Paris, Texas, though it's been ages since I've seen it, but there's a lot of his work. Oh, he's done a ton of stuff. I need to see. Alice in the Cities, The American Friend, the follow-up to Wings of Desire, Far Away So Close, which, Josh, I've had a VHS copy of in my possession since probably 1992 and never watched. So I need more Vim Vendors. Maybe he's even potentially a subject for a film spotting marathon at some point. In the meantime, I'm going to watch this documentary when it comes out May 18th. Two documentaries on our summer movie preview, how film spotting is this. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so Vendors is like There'll be explosions. Probably, I'm sure yeah, there'll be yeah, some explosions. We'll get to some of that. Uh, he's probably the perfect 
filmmaker to do something like this, to, to make you doubly interested in it, even if you were already interested mm-hmm. in Francis as a person, um, because I don't, maybe, maybe Scorsese would be the other person I'd like Good to point. see tackle something like this. But yeah, given Wings of Desire and much of his other work, this should be absolutely fascinating. Okay. We're down to our number two. This is a little bit different. <laughs> Will the Happy Time Murders be my second favorite puppet show of 2018? We all know Isle of Dogs is locked in as my favorite puppet show of this year, but I'm still awfully curious about the Happy Time Murders. Here's a description. You're looking confused, Adam. So I missed this one completely <laughs> Let me give in my you a description. I have here. no idea what you're talking about. Comes from Screen Crush's summer movie preview. A neo-noir puppet comedy thriller. Set in a world where puppets and humans coexist. Of course. A puppet PI and disgraced ex-cop named Phil Phillips teams up with a human detective, played by Melissa McCarthy, to solve a series of murders involving the stars of a children's TV show from the 80s. So I'm thinking a little Who Framed Roger Rabbit mixed with some Death to Smoochie and, you know, little Muppets thrown in as well. Apparently, this has been 10 years in the making, or at least 10 years ago was when the Jim Henson Company first announced the project, and it is being directed by Henson's son, Brian. Could be a disaster. I mean, it sounds like it does it really exist. Yes, it does really exist. <laughs> are you making this one I'm up not like The Little Mermaid from Sofia Coppola? Nope. I'm sure you are. It does have a good cast that would go down with the ship here. In addition to McCarthy, there's Elizabeth Banks, Maya Rudolph, Joe McHale. I'm sure some of them, I'm assuming some of them will be voicing puppets. So this is one of those things I I just want to see to know that, yes, it's really out there. I think it could be quite entertaining. The Happy Time Murders comes out on August 17. Hmm. Does it really? Think we're going to review it on the show? (laughs) Maybe. You never know, <laughs> we'll see Josh. how dry August gets. <laughs> okay, my number two is about a movie that I thought would be another good candidate for some overlap. And since you do have another choice left, there might be some overlap. And the question, actually the questions are, how far did the apple fall from the Denzel tree? And can Topher Grace play a menacing character? The movie is Black Klansman from director Spike Lee and... The cast includes John David Washington, more on him in a moment, Adam Driver, and yes, Topher Grace. And the quick synopsis here is it's based on a true story about an African-American detective living in Colorado Springs who somehow worked his way into the Ku Klux Klan and actually became the head of the chapter. Did I mention he's African-American? So I can't they wait wear to hoods, see. They were right? Apparently all the time. I, <laughs> I can't guess. wait to see how that actually does play out. To the second question first, Josh Youngerman tipped me off to this, longtime listener of the show, texted me a couple nights ago and said, I'm going to just give you one on a tee. And it was basically, will Topher Grace pull off playing the role of David Duke in Black Klansman? I wasn't even aware of that at the time. I think a little bit more interesting to me is to think of Topher Grace trying to pull off any role that doesn't have a certain goofball element to it. And I did do some Google searching because I knew someone was going to point out some case that I missed where he has played a bad guy or something along those lines. And yes, I had somehow wiped it from my memory, even though me and Sam both, when we reviewed this movie on the show, were way kinder to it than basically the rest of the world. He did play Venom in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3. Yes, he did. So he was a villain at one point in his career in a major franchise. And by all accounts, nobody liked him. 
as Venom. That didn't work. And I couldn't find my notes, so I don't know if I even commented on his performance at all. But there has always been, going back to that 70s show and other movies, too, and I've seen him in a few. I think he's really good and in good company. He's not a bad actor, but there is a kind of love me neediness to his charm. And I think there is a charm to Topher Grace. And so I want to know whether or not David Duke, of all people, will somehow be the total opposite of that? Or is that actually part of how David Duke, the head of the KKK, has managed to become a name that we're all familiar with, Josh? The fact that he's risen through the ranks and become this figure that he is, maybe it's because of this kind of love me neediness and that same kind of charm that Topher Grace exudes. So how he's going to play that role, how effective his performance will be certainly on my mind as I'm very excited to see Spike Lee's Black Klansman. But then I just discovered this last night in prepping for this top five. John David Washington, I would have just assumed, is an actor I've never heard of. He is, in fact, Denzel Washington's son. Denzel, of course, a longtime collaborator with Spike Lee. There's a few credits to his name. He's been on Ballers on HBO. He actually has a David Lowry movie that's been completed, Old Man and the Gun, that is, I'm sure, coming out sometime in 2019. Sissy Spacek, Elizabeth Moss, Robert Redford, Casey Affleck, Danny Glover also in that. But he's just part of that larger ensemble here in Black Klansman. He is the lead. This is his breakout role. Will it be his breakout performance? I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it really just because it's Spike Lee and because the subject matter is so fascinating. It almost doesn't matter who the lead is, but because he's Denzel's son, that does give it a little bit extra. Sure. Yeah. I had this as an honorable mention, really wondering if Lee is going to be able to return to controversial relevance with this, because I think of Chirac, which made my top 10 list as a recent film, but it's it's been three years now, and he's done some other stuff, a few other projects um, that haven't really caught fire. So this certainly seems like topic-wise, mm-hmm. and with the collaborators, you mentioned that it has a shot at making some more noise like Chirac did. So yeah, I'm really yeah. looking forward to Black Clans. August too. 10th, so near the end of summer is when we will see that. All right, so my number one question is the one that's involving one of those obvious films. There's going to be a couple explosions here, too. But I, I wanted to Deadpool ask it... too has just been... <laughs> It's just been rolling around in your brain for weeks. You can't wait to get this out. Uh, No, not Deadpool 2, but I think Incredibles 2. Yes. The context here is interesting. I'm really wondering if it's going to be able to return Pixar to greatness. Because I was looking at their releases, and for me, this has been the longest drought between great Pixar movies since, I would say, the gap between Brave and Inside Out. For me, Inside Out is the last great one. I know we've had some really good ones, liked Coco quite a bit, mm. but for me, I go all the way back to Inside Out, okay. where but they were how really many years ago was that? running on all cylinders. It's been a while. Together? I think it's like three or four. Okay. I think it's like three or four. But if you look at their release patterns... I mean, in the golden era, it was annual, right? It was every year they were knocking something out of the park. Then that started to stretch. And now it it kind of feels like Inside Out was a bit of an anomaly compared to what we've usually been getting. Incredibles 2 was my number four anticipated movie of the year when we did this back in January. And I think it does have a shot of getting Pixar back there, not only because of the excellence of the original, but because Brad Bird is returning as writer and director. I haven't watched the trailer. I don't want to, but I have looked at the IMDb description. It says, Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible, is left to care for Jack-Jack while Helen, Elastigirl, is out saving the world. So if the first movie examined what it meant, I think, to balance parenthood and calling, this seems to double down on that and more directly ask those questions in relation to gender roles, mm-hmm. which could be really interesting. Yes. 
Also promising, the voice cast, timely as well. The voice cast is all back. I still think Craig T. Nelson is one of Pixar's most ingenious, those unexpected but perfect casting calls that they tend to make. And I can't wait to see the return of Sarah Vowell's disaffected teen, Violet Parr, especially now that I'm living with two of them. (laughs) I think I'm going to get an extra kick out of that. Summers are just always better when they include a Pixar triumph. Here's hoping summer of 2018 gives us one. Incredibles 2 opens June 15. I'm excited about it as well. My number one summer movie question is, how did a 27-year-old male comic make an apparently very good movie, quote, which is so deeply rooted in the feminine adolescent experience, end quote? The movie is eighth grade. The director, Bo Burnham, and he is a stand-up comedian. If you have never heard of him or you aren't familiar with his work, I wasn't either until I saw The Big Sick, the Kumail Nanjiani movie from last year that did, as I recall, make my top 10 films of the year. He's in that, and I had to look him up afterwards, but he's part of the trio of comics who is frequently hanging around with Kumail, A.D. Bryant, Kurt Brownoller, and Bo Burnham. He's also the one who, in an early stand-up performance, is the one getting all the recognition from the Montreal Festival that is driving Kumail crazy because then they aren't focusing on him. But this is his feature film debut, a potential golden brick candidate, of course, eighth grade, that does follow an eighth grader. The actress who plays her is Elsie Fisher. Her name is Kayla. And it's really about her finishing her last week of classes before she heads off to high school. Of course, there's some ladybird territory here, my favorite film of last year, though going a little bit earlier in this young woman's life. And Kate Erbland is the critic writing for IndieWire in their summer preview who said that line I quoted. Her full line was, it's remarkable that Burnham, yes, a man, has delivered a film like Eighth Grade, which is so deeply rooted in the feminine adolescent experience that it often feels as if he must have cracked open a whole mess of girls' diaries to pen it. So there are a lot of reasons why I'm really fascinated about this movie. One of them, of course, is it does have the A24 pedigree. They've turned out so many good films here. And there is this larger question that I'm just going to throw out, even though many other people have discussed it in way more detail and way more eloquently than I could, this idea of who gets to tell these kinds of stories. I think it's it's obviously more complicated when you're talking about different races of people or ethnicities trying to tell other people's stories, perhaps, than gender or perhaps not. We know lots of great films about women who have been made by men and vice versa. And yet, especially in this time we're living in, I think we're all a little bit more sensitive to when a man, a 27-year-old guy, is trying to give us the perspective of a 13-year-old girl. And yet, he seems to, based on everything I've heard about this movie so far, have pulled it off. And we are going to get to, in a moment, our potential top five for next week's show. And one of the ones on the table is Too Real parenting moments. Josh, can I just make this bit from the trailer for eighth grade, my number five, right now? I think you're so cool. Maybe you just need to put yourself out there a little. I'm going to stop eating with you if you keep doing You said I could say one thing. That father trying to start any kind of conversation with his teenage daughter at the dinner table while she exasperatingly pulls out her earbuds and then barely responds. That's that's my every night, (laughs) Josh. And it sounds like it might be yours as well right now. But there's also something else at the core of this movie that's pretty fascinating, which is she's a character who is pretty silent at school and doesn't really seem to get noticed and doesn't try to make herself noticed. And yet at home, she's on social media all the time, churning out content, trying to make herself heard and trying to make her voice heard. And we think of the internet, and I think art and culture sometimes 
give us this notion of the internet as being this place where you can be anybody you want and you can put yourself out there and you can connect with people all over the world. And this movie gives us a version of that where she puts herself out there and people respond the same way they do at school. Nobody's listening. Nobody really seems to care. My question about this film, how Burnham ultimately pulled it off, I may get to ask him face-to-face here sitting across from me because we are planning to have him on the show. Eighth Grade closes out the Chicago Critics Film Festival. So on May 10th, Thursday night, it is playing if you want to get an early viewing of it. And then it is scheduled for a release on July 13th. So I have an honorable mention related to eighth grade. Should we jump right into those? Let's get there. This actually comes from a listener on Twitter. Catherine Brannon asked, which A24 indie will win our anti-blockbuster hearts? She mentioned Hereditary, Eighth Grade, Under the Silver Lake, which is from director David Robert Mitchell of It Follows, and Paul Schrader's First Reformed. Those are all A24 titles that are coming out. We're interested in all of them. We are. And Topher Grace? also stars in Under the Silver Lake. And based on what I've read about that movie, it doesn't sound very goofball. Okay. So we'll see if we get two really good performances, menacing performances from Topher Grace this year. Maybe having a Topher Grace moment this summer. We'll see. Speaking of Hereditary, I had an honorable mention question wondering if that might be a golden brick candidate. Ari Aster is a first-time director, but I don't know. I'm wondering if it might be too big of a hit. Early word is good on this. I know the trailers have been playing pretty wide in theaters. I've seen it a couple times, so this could also be a breakout summer horror hit. One more honorable mention from me here. Will Solo, going to bring us right back to the top. Yep. Give me Star Wars exhaustion just as I recover from Avengers exhaustion. (laughs) A little worried about that. Okay. My honorable mentions here. Ross Bratton wrote in on Twitter and said, Will Sorry to Bother You be the summer's indie breakout? This is the Boots Riley film that has been all the buzz yeah, of some recent film festivals. It sounds amazing. And I almost had a halfway decent question where I was going to ask something about Lakeith Stanfield, an actor I love, who is in this movie. And the whole conceit of this film is he is a telemarketer, a black, of course, telemarketer, who is told that he would be more successful if he used his white guy voice. And he does. To great success. Well, we've seen Lakeith Stanfield essentially do that in Get Out. Right. That's that's what happens to that character about halfway through that film. So there was maybe something there. I thought Ross's question was better. My initial one, honestly, Josh, was whether or not the Boots Riley movie, his debut, would be our slam dunk golden brick winner this year. But I think it's going to be too big as well. This that's what I was just gonna say. My fear, I remember hearing about this when I was doing our 2018 preview and thinking, oh, got to catch up with that for Golden Brick candidacy. And now people have just been talking about it and talking about it. So it might get too big. Yeah. Is it fair to like root against these small movies no. not to get too big so <laughs> that not. we can have them as Golden? No, probably not. Okay. Another question I had, will how to talk to girls at parties be worth the wait? And the reason I say this is John Cameron Mitchell's mm-hmm. film that's adapted from a Neil Gaiman story is finally coming out May 25th. It was my number one most anticipated movie of 2016, Josh. This was before we started asking questions. It was my number one, and here it is just finally coming out. Based on some early reviews that I've seen, just some comments here and there on the internet, I haven't read any full discussions of it, it seems like the answer is no, and that crushes me because I love Hedwig and the Angry Inch and Short Bus and Rabbit Hole as well. Couldn't wait for the next John Cameron Mitchell film. I'm going to hold out hope. That it's really good. That reminds me, is The Lobster coming out this year? 
The Lobster finally <laughs> is coming out. That was like yes. a five-year well perennial. No, but we are going to get another Yorgos Lanthimos films. He just churns them out here, apparently. I think that's either coming out in 2018 or 2019. I know Emma Stone is in the cast there. I am not really curious in any way about Ant-Man and the Wasp when it comes out on July 6th, except the fact that it has Michelle Pfeiffer and Walter Goggins in it. Walter Goggins as the bad guy. So will they maybe elevate Ant-Man and the Wasp? How about this question? Hey, Glenn Powell, when can we start being best friends? He is in a romantic comedy that's coming out on Netflix. I don't have the date, but Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch, I believe, who were both in Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some. Mm -hmm. They were not the love interest there. She was the love interest of the main character. He was one of the baseball players. Loved his performance and basically just wanted him to come hang out with me all the time. They star in this film together. And then let's give a little bit of love here to Andy Mitchell, who helped generate some of these topics and questions. He was wondering, what do we make of the screenwriting trio behind Christopher Robin? So this is a film, Mark Forster directing, that I otherwise wouldn't be too invested in, but Tom McCarthy, Alex Ross Perry, Alison Schroeder. I don't know what to make of that. That's a good question, Andy. (laughs) Raising an eyebrow about that. He also asked, what hath unfriended rot? We get the movie Searching with John Cho, who I loved in Columbus, And I told you, Josh, that it would be entirely off-brand of you to not include searching in your top five after you proclaimed your love and admiration for Unfriended. But apparently, no, not even an audible mention? No, I mean, I'm not going to – Unfriended is a horror masterpiece. I'm not going to just go for every knockoff. Every movie that takes place inside a computer? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll see. It'll have to prove itself. Fine. Finally, Andy asks this. Between On Chesil Beach and The Seagull, is the summer's lesson simply that there is no such thing as a Saoirse Ronan saturation point? I'm certainly not ready to suggest that there is a Saoirse Ronan saturation point, and I am curious about both films. Thank you, Andy. And thanks to everyone who did send us some of your ideas on Twitter. We'd love to hear your feedback to this top five. What are your burning summer movie questions? Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. It's the return of the Film Spotting poll when we come back with a question involving Thanos himself, Josh Brolin. Then we discuss the year's first Golden Brick candidate, The Rider, along with Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Stay with us. Somebody lit the store on fire Somebody lit the house on fire Somebody lit the crowd on fire Marching away And you've got nothing to say And you've got nothing to say Have you got nothing to say For those of you who told me around and I'm supposed to just switch gears like hello all sexy now you're empty yeah no you're empty on this side 
Mackenzie Davis and Charlize Theron there in the trailer for Tully. It's the new one from director Jason Reitman and screenwriter Diablo Cody. They collaborated on both Juno and Young Adult. Next week on the show, Josh, we do plan to discuss Tully, which is opening semi-wide on about 1,200 screens this weekend. So if you're so inclined and want to be informed for that conversation, you may just have a chance to see it. If I remember correctly, we're both very positive on Juno. Yeah, is that still allowed? I, f- I feel like it's not cool to like Juno anymore. It's not cool. Okay. We've talked about it. It's not cool at yeah. all, but we don't care. I'm still a fan. I am too. Young adult, both a little mm. more mixed on. Yeah. And great performance from Charlie's Throne, though. Yeah. So that's promising for this. Yeah. And we'll see how this third collaboration goes. For our top five tie in, we were considering, speaking of collaborations, director screenwriter pairs. We've done something like it before, but I think it was always based on kind of comedy ensembles or comedy teams of writers. We haven't really done just pairings like Cody and Reitman, who have worked together three times or more. It's a pretty good top five topic. And We might go with it, but I think right now all of us agree. I know Sam is in agreement with us, Josh, that the better idea came from RPA, Andy Mitchell, who said maybe we should go with two real parenting moments in movies. Certainly that one would be more cathartic, I think. It may be. So if this is, you know, partly therapy we're doing here, maybe we should have that direction. It is one of those lists where immediately you recognize it as the best choice. Of course, it's going to be more personal. We're going to be more invested. It's going to be more interesting. It's going to be so much harder, though. In of course. every way, not only wrestling with these choices, but just coming up with the picks. Whereas, you know, something like director-screenwriter pairs, you can just Google That's that. That's a lot of Googling. Cross a few off and, and then try to sound smart when you explain your choices. But I do think that two real parenting moments in movies is going to be a more fruitful top five. I already have a couple in mind, and we would love your help. So if any immediately spring to mind, and really, how about better yet, if any immediately spring to mind that you know we have mentioned in past shows, remind us of those. That's probably happened. I know. So we'd love to hear those. Feedback at filmspotting.net is the email. Our voicemail is 312-264-0744. If you leave enough good voicemails, you might just get yourself invited here to the studio to participate. A reminder to our Chicago area listeners that the Chicago Critics Film Festival starts May 4th at the Music Box. It runs through the 10th. We touched on the highlights of it, or a few of the highlights, a couple weeks back with Steve Procopi here. He was on the selection committee, and they did a wonderful job this year. There's a bunch of stuff I want to see. I wish we had the time to see them all. Damsel, a Western of sorts, with Robert Pattinson and Mia Vasakovska, Paul Schrader's First Reform with Ethan Hawke, which we're giving away passes to, Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace. This is her first movie since 2010's Winter's Bone, which we both loved, and The Doc, Three Identical Strangers, also in the lineup. I will get into that a bit more later in the show. Probably the best lineup we've seen in the couple of yeah, years they've the been doing this fest. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah, it is. I agree. And you can view that lineup at chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. And for passes to Chicago area screenings, keep your eye on filmspotting.net slash events. If you go to our shop page at filmspotting.net or filmspotting.net slash shop, you can participate in our t-shirt design contest. We did bring this up on last week's show. We talked about Avengers Infinity War. We shared our top five film spotting Avengers, our cinematic heroes, and I need to see Agnes Varda on a t-shirt. That's what it comes down to. I need to see Agnes Varda as a superhero on a t-shirt. So that's 
your mission. It's a collaboration with our merch partner, T Public. We're looking for designs inspired by Film Spotting's Avengers. We're accepting all design ideas, and the winner's design will be added to our storefront for all Film Spotting listeners to buy. So hopefully we get a few good ones. The submission deadline is June 1st. I know we have a lot of creative people out there. I know we have a lot of graphic designers out there who listen to the show. So Take some time away from whatever logo, what, whatever mindless, terrible logo you're being asked to create, and think about Film Spotting's Avengers. There's going to be Agnes Varda superhero t-shirts all over this summer. I love it's it. It's going to be what people are wearing at the beach, the pool. Do you remember the name I gave to my Agnes Varda superhero? Uh, no. The Seeker. That's right. <laughs> if you want to go back and listen to that show, why not? Filmspotting.net is where you will find that top five. In case you missed last week's intense, profanity-laden edition of Massacre Theater, here's a bit of what you missed on the return of Massacre Theater. Been a year and a half. You gonna catch this effing guy or not? Go F yourself. Happily. Just a normal production meeting for us. We came back so angry. (laughs) Yeah. If you know what movie we massacred there, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, May 7th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. And in case you've forgotten the massacre theater rules, you can see those also at filmspotting.net. My name's Cable. I'm here for the kid. What? The kid? There it is, Josh, your beloved Deadpool 2. I got to see Deadpool Oh, no, you haven't even seen the first one? No. I actually kind of liked it. I understand it's not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is not. I made that mistake once. I added it to my ranked MCU list on Letterboxd. You You made that mistake to watch it? I probably did. I think I, no, I think I watched it just so I could add it to my ranking, and then it turns out (laughs) someone called me out on it because I'm an idiot. So that's Josh Brolin back in supervillain mode as Cable in the trailer for Deadpool 2. It's out in just a couple of weeks, May 18th. Brolin, of course, currently the voice of Thanos in Avengers Infinity War. Different haircut, different yeah, haircut, different haircut indeed. I brought different it up. skin tone. How kind of weird it is. I've seen the trailer for Deadpool 2 a couple of times, and I'm thinking of him as this bad guy, and then I got to go hear his voice in Infinity War. I'm ultimately okay with it because you can put Josh Brolin in really about anything, and he's a great actor. And that's really the subject of this week's poll question, which, just for the record here, I don't remember Sam running by us, either of us. I saw this. Oh, okay. I just overlooked it. I gave it. it a big thumbs up. You did. That, okay. that, was, that was my input. Maybe that's why I turned away. There's no fun there <laughs> if Josh is on board with the poll question. It's a good one, though. And I say that because I am really going to have a tough time deciding on an answer. We'll see if you have similar difficulties. Josh, what is your favorite Josh Brolin performance? And Sam's making it a little bit easier, I suppose, by making this the No Country for Old Men memorial poll question. So, you can't go with Llewellyn Moss, which probably was my default answer. Yeah, that yeah. would yeah, that would have been the yeah, easy I mean, answer for you. It would have been the easy answer, I think, for most people listening. I maybe would have been able to talk myself into one of these other choices, but yeah, I love him in that film. Certainly, the most beloved film that he's been in that's on this list. So yeah, I that think makes that's sense. fair to say. Yeah. All right, so you can't choose that. You can choose. Eddie Mannix, the studio fixer in the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar. Matt Graver, this was the eccentric Department of Justice task force leader in Denis Villeneuve's Sicario. He's returning as Graver this summer in Sicario to Day of the Soldado. 
Or you can pick Lieutenant Detective Bigfoot Bjornsson, the frozen banana connoisseur and nemesis of Joaquin Phoenix's Doc Sportello in Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. How about Dan White, the San Francisco city supervisor who assassinated Harvey Milk in Gus Van Sant's Milk biopic? This, so far, is Brolin's only Oscar nomination. Mm -hmm. Other category we're giving you as well, if you want to go Thanos, if you want to go with his Tom Chaney in the Coen Brothers' True Grit, or maybe Agent Tony Kent in Flirting with Disaster. Forgot about that. Totally forgot You could go back to that. Goonies, too. You could. And I don't mean I Goonies to the sequel. You could. Which, even though on our show, when he did the film spotting drop, he said he's the star of Goonies, That's right, too. he did. It doesn't exist. I mean Goonies also. Yes. He was in that Spielberg movie from the 80s. Okay, so given that you can't go with No Country for Old Men, yes. where are you leaning? If I can't go with my number one or two favorite set of filmmakers working today, the Coen brothers, and yes, there are other options, but it would be no country for me, then I'm going to go with my other one or two favorite filmmaker working today, Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm a big fan of Inherent Vice. I love Joaquin Phoenix's performance in that, and I love, love Josh Brolin's big He's so Bjornsson. funny. Yeah. He's so I mean, hilarious. so out there and weird, but still brings that kind of just fierce intensity yep. to it, and... He's so good. It's really good. I have to go with, though, Hail Caesar just because it was my favorite movie of that year. And he anchors it. it. I mean, he's it's all about him and that existential struggle of that character, which is a broad comedy. But he roots it in those serious ideas as well. Well, while still having some pretty funny scenes. So Mm -hmm. Brolin, man. Really talented guy, can just about do it all. This is going to be a tough poll. Yeah, it will be. We can't wait to see how it comes out. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment in the poll, we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. State Senator Albert Vato. His teenage daughter's missing. What's the lead? He got an anonymous text with an address. I've heard of these places. I said you were brutal. I can be. I want you to hurt them. That was Joaquin Phoenix. Not a very talkative Joaquin Phoenix in You Were Never Really Here from director Lynn Ramsey. Phoenix won the Best Actor Prize at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival for his performance as Joe. In the movie, he plays a hammer-wielding vet who tracks down missing girls. It's Scottish director Lynn Ramsey's first feature since 2011's We Need to Talk About Kevin. She also directed 2002's Morvern Kalar and Rat Catcher. Josh, I think it's so appropriate. We're sharing our most anticipated movies of the summer movie season and our questions surrounding those movies. What word says summer more than trauma? Hmm. <laughs> Here on Film Spotting, it's, it's the word come up, for these two. Yeah, it's come up a lot lately. Actually, it was part of the review of A Quiet Place that Michael Phillips and myself did. It was part of our conversation about Andrew Haig's Lean on Pete and his filmography. And it's, for me, what connects the films we're going to discuss now. Joe is not just traumatized by war, and we really see relatively little of that. And when we do, it's not combat trauma, really, like we're used to seeing in films. More than that, he's traumatized by a childhood spent, it seems, from the flashbacks we get, and there are many of them, trying to survive the torment and wrath that his father wrought on him and his mother. Now, what's the trauma at the core of the writer? Well, reading from one plot description here, it says, Once a rising star of the rodeo circuit and a gifted horse trainer, a young cowboy named Brady is warned that his riding days are over after a horse crushes his skull at a rodeo. 
seems pretty traumatic to me. In the Ramsey film, we see someone who has witnessed and felt himself the effects of violence and death, who only knows how to go through life and make a living inflicting violence and death. In Zhao's film, the main character Brady almost died on a horse, and he only knows one way to live and make a living, and that's on a horse. Joe is trapped, mainly inside his own damaged psyche, but also the place he shares with his mother and the small group of people he has to associate with in order to do his business. Brady is trapped within his own damaged body, a circumstance heightened by his surroundings, the wide open West. So Josh, which is the better movie about trauma? And is that the same as asking, which is the better movie? I mean, you can ask which is the more effective at capturing the traumatic experience. And one's more traumatic to watch. Yeah, that's where I'm going. Yeah. That might be you were never really here. Which film do I appreciate more is The Rider. And I like them both. If you can say you like something like you were never really here. I mean, you said trapped, that Joe is trapped in his own psyche. Mm -hmm. Both the tough thing to swallow and the craft of that movie is that you feel that way as an audience member, right? It's exactly because of the choices Ramsey makes where this is an amalgamation of flashbacks, abstract images, really intricate sound design. Yes. Uh, that's just so harrowing. And I was trying to ask myself, why did I, I just kind of want out of this film, even as I recognized its artistry, when yes. I've seen other movies that are similarly bleak material. And maybe it's just where I'm at as a parent, honestly. I mean, that like this, the subject matter of these girls who find themselves caught up in sex trafficking was just stomach churning. Which isn't something we learn about until a good 35 minutes into the movie, Probably. Maybe? 35, 40? Yeah, they're, they're right. It, it's very oblique Like really opening. wrap our heads around. Exactly. Yes. So it's not like it's, and I don't mean to say that the film is exploiting that element either no. at all. It doesn't exploit that. It doesn't exploit the violence. Um, so this is more on me than the movie. It's the way I've been describing it, right? And, it, and it's maybe a testament to the effectiveness that Ramsey is able to capture how seems to be exploring this central question, which I do think is interesting but tough to consider, is Joe's choice to pursue this life of helping those who have found themselves suffering from trauma. Is that helping him process his own trauma Hmm. or is it only making those psychological wounds fester? Yeah. And I think the movie – delivers an answer because we see him between jobs, you know, putting a plastic bag over his face or dangling a knife, laying on a bed, dangling a knife over his eye. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are jarring images of self-harm. Clearly, he's not finding any catharsis. Um, And you can talk about, is it because he's this figure of vengeance that's also a figure of execution, Mm -hmm. right? He works outside of the law. So he takes money from these families because they'll know he's going to kill these people yes. who have done this, right? So there's this other question here of him being a vigilante and what's right. the – is that righteous vengeance? What's going on there? It seems to be eating him alive. Um, and again, all good, interesting things to explore. But I wanted this movie to be done. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be done writing about it as soon as I could. And I kind of want to be done talking about it pretty soon, which – I'll go back to saying is on me, but I don't know what was, we'll get to the writer, but what what was your experience for your willingness or desire to see it a second time is always indicative of how good of a movie it is. But I am more inclined to want to see it again because of that artistry. I I want to try to pick up not on the clues because it's not about the plot here at all, but maybe there is a part of me that 
just wants to understand a little bit more the signs and the symbols that I think Ramsey is putting out there and what that really is saying about him. I think I could process it more that second time, even though it would be another very difficult sit. And you mentioned that idea of catharsis. And I'll be honest, it did not occur to me, at least sitting in the theater, that he may be pursuing this type of life consciously or unconsciously. And Ramsey leaves it there for us to decide. The movie certainly doesn't explain it. His drive to do this job, whether it is driven by him trying to make up for what happened to his mother. And it really didn't crystallize for me at all until I read a great review of this movie, the only one I've read on Letterboxd. Our friend of the show, Melissa Taminga, really wrote remarkably about this film, and she loves this movie. It's her favorite of the year so far. And she points out that he spent his whole life wanting to save his mother from these brutal beatings, not being able to do it. And now he has, is it an accident that he's out there trying to save women? He's trying to save these young girls. It's probably not, but I wonder how much it's actually in his head if he's seeking that catharsis or if it's really just the only way he knows how to live. And, oh, by the way, it's not giving him any catharsis at all. There's no solace in this whatsoever. I really do think it is making it worse. I have not read otherwise any other comments or what Ramsey has said about this film. I could be wrong. Maybe she very deliberately is pursuing a kind of stylistic exercise here, and she's trying to comment on or subvert the hitman, save the girl, redeem your terrible life movie. I don't think that is really at the core of her endeavor. And yet, watching it, Josh, I don't know if you had the same experience, I was aware always that I've seen enough of those types of films. It's its own genre, really, that there is a certain set of genre expectations that this movie does challenge. One of them being, for me anyway, my eagerness, I would say, the thrill, as much as it may be, of watching the bad man be really good at doing bad things. Where's that moment where we're going to get the professional punisher going to work? And I don't. I'm not someone who loves gory stuff. I don't think of myself anyway as someone who has a certain type of bloodlust in real life or watching films, but it's partly justified watching this movie. We know what these people have done. We know the people he's punishing aren't just bad people. They're among the worst people there are. And as much as I am, as I said, never excited to watch gratuitous violence, there is a certain thrill I think we get as an audience detached from this all sitting in the theater, watching it on the screen, watching anyone who is good at their jobs and watching some people get what's coming to them. And Ramsey, I think, completely avoids playing into that thrill and that eagerness. There's very little skill that goes into what he does, just will, just brute force. And she even distances us mostly from it. The one big scene where this is finally going to all play out, we get it mostly through surveillance footage Mm -hmm. that shows more the aftermath of the violence than anything. And actually, when we do see him committing the violence, he's a white blob on a screen in in this sort of night vision or whatever, this black and white. So we really don't get any pleasure from that whatsoever, whatever pleasure there is to be found. And I think, too, I will obviously not get into specifics here, but I think it further challenges us in the way the movie does or doesn't pay off. And I don't mean whether or not we find that Joe is or isn't a hero or the people we hope survive do survive or the people we hope get their punishment, get their punishment just in the way it all converges or doesn't converge. There is a certain conspiracy that's at the heart of this plot. You probably could have read into that a little bit from the clip we played in the trailer, the senator who's talking to him and watching these types of films. We want our complex conspiracies to ultimately be unraveled 
to be tidy. And I would say this movie doesn't go for that at all. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I was starting to get worried when that conspiracy kicked in because then it started to make turns towards the thriller. And I agree. I don't think that's what the movie is. It's not. Essentially interested in. That's that's what I was getting at when I was saying it's not exploitative because that would be the traditional revenge thriller that Mm -hmm. we've seen a million times. And this film certainly is not that. The violence, uh, it's, it's almost always we cut to Joe a few seconds after he's committed the act, almost routinely, is that the case? And, and sometimes that makes it more disturbing, right? It's it's the old trick of letting our imaginations think of something worse than what we might have seen. So I think it's effective. What I would say the movie is most interested in, and I was glad to see that thriller element get subverted, is just this psyche. I think it's just an exploration of the psychological reality of being traumatized and yeah. living with that and trying to work through it. And I think that is what the craftsmanship is all about. All those elements we've talked about, the use of image and sound is to put us right there inside Joe's deranged and damaged point of view. And Phoenix, what Ramsey and her collaborators are doing, giving us from the inside, he's giving us from the outside in a, in a really disturbing but low-key performance that he, he's, he gives Joe these um, – mm-hmm. His eyes are sort of, I don't know, they're vacant but violent at the same time. You know, they're not threatening, but you you get the sense that at any instant they could be. His physique is also, you can't get a handle on it. He's big here, right? Yeah. Like yeah. huge, yeah. but also kind of puffy. Oh, yeah. He's not muscular. You know, it's right. Yeah. He's, He's lumbering. not like this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very unnerving physical performance. Yes. And that's, again, just capturing what's going on in his head and putting it out there on the surface for us to see. So so Phoenix, really strong here. He's he's always really strong. He's probably the best working actor, Might frankly. Be. And like Brady, who we're going to talk about a little bit more when we get to the writer, he isn't a character who acts, certainly doesn't capital A act. He doesn't raise his voice. He is always withholding. And you feel the weight of that withholding as a viewer. We played the line, actually, for me, that's one of the key lines in terms of really appreciating Phoenix's performance when he says, I hear you're brutal. And he says, I can be. There's multiple notes being played there where he is, as a man, admitting, essentially, I'm a monster or a certain type of monster. And I think Phoenix as an actor could kind of comment on that through his performance and through his inflection. And he could show us some humanity underlying Joe that basically tells the audience, well, I'm not always though. You know, I have I have my reasons yeah, for doing not, this. He's never indicating no, any is, of that. This is not a performance that's worried at all no. about the audience. Right, right. And so I like that because it's actually engaging us more as audience members. And you know the movie, oddly enough, that I thought about watching this? The only one. I wasn't thinking about other types of hitman movies. But I thought about a recent marathon movie, Lucretia Martel's La Cienega. Hmm. Because of the sound design, that was a big part of it. But there is such creeping dread in this film. And both movies, there's plot. And I think there is probably more so even here in You Were Never Really Here. But it's secondary to the experience itself. You touched on it. The mechanics of filmmaking, what Ramsey's doing artistically here from the sound design, including the score, Johnny Greenwood, another yeah. great Johnny Greenwood score. And the way images are given to us and then edited, it allows us as viewers, it makes us really wander around inside Joe's fractured mind and know that isn't a very good place to be. And La Cienega is a movie where 
There's no violence that I can think of at all, but I was just always expecting something terrible to happen. And here, so many terrible things happen that even when he's holding a fork, there's a scene where he is singing with his mother and they're polishing their knives and spoons and forks. Right. And it should be a sweet moment in an otherwise totally non-sweet movie. And yet watching it, Josh, all I could think about, and I can't imagine I'm the only person this is true of all i could think about is what he could do to someone with that fork because that's the type of film it is and that's the way the movie depicts how he uses anything that gets into his hands to complete whatever task he has to complete and it's unnerving it's unsettling and you mentioned how it seems to give us a sense of what living with this type of trauma is like i think a lot of us listening hopefully all of us listening I'm sure we have some moments from our past that that haunt us, whatever they might be. But I hope it's nothing on the level of the type of things this character endured that we see in those flashbacks, in those visions he's having. But it made me at least consider, Josh, if this truly is to someone who has gone through those types of events, if this really is what living with trauma every day is like, where the past and the present and really no sense of a future they're always in conflict with each other. And there's this sort of dissociation. And I think we have a little bit of a dissociative experience watching the movie. This dissociation from reality, Ramsey makes us live with that, for better or for worse. I say better as, I suppose, an artistic experience, worse yeah, as an entertaining experience. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, those the flashbacks are visions, you said. I, I think that's a good word, too, because they're not all flashbacks. No, they're not. Right? There are other elements we get here they invade this movie like sudden seizures um and and yeah at least that's how it feels watching it okay you were never really here i don't know if you take that as an urging to go see the film or date not Date night yeah date night absolutely we're both recommending it good film we're both recommending the movie it sounds like we're both recommending the writer as well not as gut-wrenching an experience not as traumatizing an experience no. to watch as you were intense, never though. really here but yes intense in its own way what stood out to you about it so i think the backstory here is you know almost as fascinating in a lot of ways uh, the director writer director chloe Zhao, she attended college in the u.s but was born and raised in beijing so while here in the state, she becomes fascinated by South Dakota and the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in particular. I actually saw her debut feature, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, at Sundance a few years ago, and it had some really striking imagery. Uh, it was it followed a brother and sister on this Pine Ridge Reservation and kind of uh, played out a little bit like a Malick film with its imagery, um, but. Here she has a much stronger thematic focus in the rider mm -hmm. set amidst the same community, essentially, and like songs my brothers taught me, entirely, almost entirely a non-professional cast. So in this case, Brady Blackburn, played by Brady Jandro, is sharing his own story. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who really was injured, almost killed when he fell off a horse during a rodeo. Which neither of us knew going into the film. I'm Had trying to remember if I because I had no clue. I, you know, I really don't remember for sure. I, having seen songs my brothers taught me, I knew this is how she worked. Okay. So, but I don't know that it was a one-to-one -one thing where Jandro was, yes, non-professional, but also telling his exact story. I mm -hmm. don't think I knew that. Okay. Um, and I don't think you would because he's very good. No, you wouldn't. Uh, he's it's really good. It's minimalist. Yes. Right. It's yes. not trying to do too much. 
Um, For me, it's up there with Phoenix as my favorite I think male performance. I of the think year. they're very comparable. Yeah. They're similar in approach and style and equally effective. And the question here really is, you know, the trauma he's facing is, yes, physical. And the, and the movie is true to that. Um, but also it's this identity crisis. That's what I mean, it is. What, yeah. what, are, what is he going to do? In this macho subculture when, you know, his writing is all he's known and there's no other purpose you get a sense if you can't do that, at least to be respected and admired in the way that he was getting used to as a as a burgeoning rodeo mm-hmm. star. So this movie, I think for better and for worse, uses its non-professional actors. Jandro's uh, father and sister. Yes. His sister has Asperger's syndrome. They play his father and sister. And I will say, especially having seen a number of uh, Sean Baker films now who also likes to work with a mix of novices and established actors, I don't think Zhao quite has the same facility with them as Baker. As good as Jandro is, I think some of the supporting performances, you can feel that – I don't know if it's even inexperience or you can just feel the documentary elements more in their scenes perhaps – um, I don't think it's a huge detriment. I, I no. just recognized it there. Um, but overall, this movie works for a three, I would say, really amazing scenes I want us to get to and spend a little time okay. on. But go ahead with uh, what you thought initially first. Well, first, I do want to point out you mentioned masculinity, and that's another real connection between these two films because I think it's more blatant here in the writer, actually, and this type of life that these characters lead, what it means to be a cowboy in this world. But it's also part of You Were Never Really Here, not only in the male figure saving these women, but in some of those flashbacks, we get a sense of the father trying to trying to show him what a masculine ideal is. That element, the way reality and and fiction are used, documentary and narrative are used in this film, really is fascinating. And as I said, I went in having no sense of that whatsoever, not expecting it at all. And the next picture show, our sister show, has released this week, actually, their new pairing. They always do a past movie and a present movie and talk about how they kind of converse with each other and how the new one may or may not be inspired or influenced by the other. The writer is undeniably this lyrical narrative feature and less experimental than something like Close Up, the other movie that they pair it with, the Kiristami film from the 90s, which was much more blatant in the way it blurred that line between reality and fiction. And yet the way Zhao does it for me is really subtly fascinating because I kind of went on this journey with the movie to realizing what she was doing. First, you see this performer. You see Brady Jandro playing Brady Blackburn. And he's an unknown face, he's an unknown name, and he's so natural, and as you said, minimal, yet so expressive on screen. And he's doing things physically on a horse and training a horse that I think most of us watching have to assume that's not something you can just act, you know, or a lot of research and a lot of painstaking work has to go into someone who doesn't already know how to do that inherently, instinctively, pulling that off. So I'm starting to kind of suspect that maybe he was someone who just really came from this life and really wasn't an actor. And at this point, I didn't even know his name was Brady in real life either. So that crossover wasn't there for me. And then you meet his father, Wayne, and his sister, as you said, Lily. And you think, well, they don't really seem like actors either. I've never seen them before. What Lily is doing, and her name is Lily in real life, being this person, not playing this person with a form of autism. And her father, I agree with you, Josh. I think Tim Jandro as Wayne here, the father, is the one who is 
not as immediately convincing as an actor. He doesn't seem as natural on screen. But not only do I think it doesn't really harm the movie, I think you could make the case it gives it a little bit more authenticity. It didn't pull me out of the film. Something about a character just saying something, and there's a key line, there's a key exchange between them late in the movie that we won't talk about, obviously, but something about that line, I could just hear it in my head being delivered so many different ways by other really professionally trained actors, and maybe they would be more convincing, maybe they would be better, maybe they wouldn't be, but I think there's something about a character saying something that feels true to them and not saying it the way they've processed it, they've analyzed it, they've done sort of that beat analysis, and here's what I'm going to express. They're just saying it, and maybe it doesn't come out quite as eloquently or as naturally in some ways, actually, as another actor would do it, but it worked for me. So I'm seeing some of these elements to the performance, and I'm thinking, okay, she's at least using non-professional actors and people who really have lived these experiences that we're seeing portrayed on screen. And then it's taken to another level when we meet Lane Scott, yeah. who is in a home. At first, we hear about rehab, and we think, well, he probably has an addiction problem. At least that's what I thought. And then you realize it's not that type of rehab, that he is another rodeo rider who has suffered a debilitating injury. He is now paralyzed. And you're watching him, and you're seeing old footage, and you're realizing that this old footage is real old footage, and it's him. So this actor isn't acting like someone who's paralyzed now. That's him. He did suffer that injury. And at the end of the film, the first thing I did was Google that and sure enough, saw that that was true. The one stylistic nod that happens just before that visit actually is when he's out with his friends and they have a campfire and it's dark and they're sharing stories and they're talking about his injury. And then it just kind of goes into this roundtable of them sharing stories, these other three friends about their injuries rodeoing. And it is almost like a documentary where they're talking to an interviewer almost more than each other. They're answering the question, it seemed to me, that the filmmaker posed to them, what's the worst injury you've ever suffered? What's your best story where you got hurt? And that's the moment where they tell it. And so in that moment, it feels like a totally different type of film. But I love the confidence and the control as a filmmaker to interject a scene like that, along with the other ways that Zhao is integrating real people and events. But for me, it never upstaged or or undid this otherwise really poetic narrative. Yeah, what's remarkable about that campfire scene is that even as it has that documentary element of testimony, right. it's this jaw-droppingly gorgeous lyrical. They're atop a plateau as yep. the sun goes down in the campfire. And then they're where you know, they're cowboys. They're dressed so they have this mythical, heroic imagery going on here at the very time that their testimony is undercutting that a little bit mm -hmm. by by mentioning the costs of this lifestyle and also you get this sense that you know they they might be the some of the only ones of their kind left doing these sorts of things and and that's echoed by this uh the darkness that's surrounding them and they're this lone group atop this plateau the cinematography is by joshua james richards who also worked with Zhao on her previous film so that's really gorgeous that's one of the scenes i want to be sure we talked about you mentioned the other one with lane scott and mm -hmm. rehab what about the heartbreaking moment where they relive they, riding. They relive riding oh. by putting him, essentially trying to put him on a saddle. And Brady is encouraging him. And and here's where close up is a good touch point because this is where our knowledge that these real people are reenacting things they've done before 
knowing that watching this scene does add you can call it yeah. meta and call and I think it you like do know it even if you haven't googled it you know or it you're not aware of it you know because it. these you see these are two friends i mean these are either like the best actors we've ever seen right or these are guys who have done this mm. and then you're thinking about even as you're living that experience as fiction you're thinking about what does it mean for these two guys who have done this right to be recreating this again when it's one of these really complicated actions where you know Sure, there might be some encouragement in it because Lane professes that he's going to get back on a horse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's his stance. He's going to get out of that wheelchair and go back to the rodeo. So there's there's a form of – there's an element of inspiration to it. But also when you see the reality of what he's facing, mm-hmm. there's this um, you know just a, a sense of depression. And all of that is wrapped up in their moment together, which you know is real. So And, and Close Up does that too where – People are recreating things they've experienced yes. in some ways, maybe not as intensely as this, uh, depending on, you know, how you see the stakes in that film. So and the other one you referenced as well, for me, the moment where the movie did come together is that horse training sequence with Brady in the corral. He has made money before training horses. Mm-hmm. He has a knack for it. And, you know, his doctors have told him no, you can't do the rodeo yes. anymore. So maybe this is a way you can live. And Zhao just lets this again happen at sunset and it's a series of long takes that she cuts intercuts basically is probably an afternoon of training but we see in one extended sequence mm-hmm. that's just beautiful to watch the way he's he alternates gentle caresses with these firm commands and this is a guy with a real gift yeah. showing it on the screen it's it's an instance of pure harmony and yes. in a way, it's purer harmony than the scenes you've seen of him on a rodeo because there's there's something off about that. There, there's not only the danger, there's the um, you know the the horses, the anger of the horses clearly mm-hmm. being in distress. Here, it's this guy with this creature, and they're in harmony. It's where he needs to be. Yeah, and there and there's something beautiful about him getting that moment, even in the wake of his injury. Yes, of course. You know, there's that setting sun again, and you realize this is also something that the sun is going down on in America in general as a way of life. And so there's a dual melancholy here, Brady's particular situation, the lifestyle of this subculture mm-hmm. that Zhao is so fascinated with. And, and man, that's a stunner of a moment where that all comes together. And perhaps what's also going away, for better or worse, is this sense of manhood. Right. As well, this masculine identity. And that scene you mentioned is also one where we are supremely aware of the tragedy of his situation because we see how harmonious that moment is and how good he is at that job. And we know that while he might think maybe I can pull this off. We know it's not going to work. We know the reality of his situation. We know we know how this is going to play out. And actually, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying with you were never really here on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. We're watching in that moment a professional doing what he does best. It's him fulfilling his purpose, and it's definitely much more pleasant to watch. I have to bring up, though, I have to ask you, because we talked about Lean on Pete a couple weeks ago, another very good horse movie this year. And the whole angle, the beginning of the discussion, was about horses as metaphors. And there's an unfortunate horse metaphor here, I would say. There's an unfortunate horse metaphor here. It's the one moment in the film where Zhao, as a a filmmaker, decides, I need to spell something out for the audience. Yeah, she doesn't trust her images. And I, I do want to give some credit, though, and suggest that 
at least there, it's not the way it is in some other movies where someone has to underline the theme for us, where they shoehorn it into another character saying it or expressing something. I think you could make a case that it's believable that Brady, that man, would have that realization. Oh, absolutely. That That he would see the metaphor and feel the need to express it. Though as a viewer in the moment, I was watching it going, I think everyone seeing this film is is undeniably aware of exactly what he's thinking and exactly what he ultimately expresses. And then he does. Yeah. And see, right. See, I would counter that because it's out of character with the performance he's been giving, which is speaks only when he absolutely needs to. But he could have that and epiphany. He, oh, absolutely. He could. Right. But like her imagery is so powerful that. that we are all having that epiphany based just on what she shows us. So there's just, you know, just a little lack of confidence in that imagery, which is so stunning. It does all the work it needs to do. I believe God gives each of us a purpose. To the horse that's trying to cross the prairie. Go on, baby. For a cowboy, it's to ride. So we actually have one more quick film to talk about. I also managed to see over the weekend another film. Guess what, Josh? About trauma. It really Lucky is. Lucky you. Yeah. Three Identical Strangers. This one is just a full-blown documentary, and it is playing at this upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival we talked about a couple of times. This is one of those stories that when you see the movie, if you didn't live through it in the 80s and you weren't aware of these triplets, and I was not— You can't wait to go tell just about everyone you know. If the proverbial water cooler exists at all, this is the movie where you just can't wait to go tell someone, you're never going to believe this true story. And I'm only, of course, going to give you the opening gist of it. But in New York, in 1980, three strangers discover completely coincidentally that they were separated at birth, that they are identical triplets. They're 19 years old. They lived their whole lives actually not too far from each other, never knowing that their brothers existed and they do come together and they kind of take the world by storm for a little bit, especially in New York because they become celebrities in the eighties. And that's where I'll leave the story (laughs) because it goes from there into some really fascinating directions. And it's directed by Tim Wardle, who's made a couple films for channel four in England. I think this is his first feature documentary and definitely one I want to throw into the mix as well as the writer as a golden brick candidate. I think the way he takes all this information, including knowing what ultimately he's going to reveal, the secrets that are at the core of this story, the really provocative questions about genetics, about ethics, about so many things that are at the core of this story, he doles out that information and constructs the chronology in just the right way so that we have enough information to be invested and feel at all times like we have a handle on the story and where it's going. But there are always these little questions, these little details nagging at us. You kind of file it away until you connect the dot a little bit later. And then finally, the movie does connect all of those dots. And you realize that you're now watching another part of this thread that proves to be even more incredible than that initial story of these three brothers coming together in the way that they do. And I mean, not just interesting and provocative, but truly incredible where you're just kind of saying, wait, what? You just can't believe it when you're watching it. There was a point in this movie with about 
20 minutes left where another layer is revealed. And I audibly said, oh, come on. And it wasn't the kind of, oh, come on, like I was incredulous, like I couldn't believe it was going there. It was more like the, of course, the the sound you make, what you say when you realize who the killer is finally in a great murder mystery that you're all swept up in at that moment where you kind of have an epiphany and you put all those details together. It doesn't start out this way, but at some point, this really does become kind of a thriller. And Katie Rich, who I follow on Twitter, she saw it at full frame and said that the crowd did have that experience. Her crowd experienced it like a thriller, and she recommended it to anyone who is able to see it at some upcoming fests. It is playing that Chicago Critics Film Festival, as I said. I think it's going to get a release here later. And this is the last thing I'll say about Three Identical Strangers. And I'm just going to have to be provocative myself and not get into any more details at this point. But it's one of a handful of movies that I can say changed me in some way. Okay. Like... The type of film where you don't just become aware of something that maybe you weren't aware of before. Actually, everything the movie deals with, there are no lessons here or grand proclamations that I think any viewer is going to come away with and say, wow, never thought of that before. But something about the power of the story, the cumulative power of the story, it made me think about certain choices I make and how I need to change those choices. Okay. And – It's only been a few days, but I'm doing it – like I'm making conscious decisions to change certain behaviors every day because of this movie. I'm sure that was not Tim Mortal's objective when he made the film, but that's the experience I had with it. All right. Put it away for that list when we get to it. Top five movies that changed me. We we didn't do that, Well, episode 400, the the lessons we've learned from the movies, I think think this will be episode 800, the live show, when we do that. The writer – And you were never really here, currently playing in limited release, Three Identical Strangers, as I said, playing the Chicago Critics Film Festival, Tuesday the 8th, and then you have another chance to see it Wednesday the 9th. If you have seen one or both or all three of those movies and agree or disagree with our thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in an upcoming show, 312-264-0744. At filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. That's also where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking about the best of Brolin. What is your favorite Josh Thanos Brolin performance? And if you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. Next Picture Show, as we mentioned, doing the rider alongside Close Up this week, so a good time to check that out. You can find both Film Spotting SVU and Next Picture Show in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend, Claire's Camera, the latest from South Korea's prolific Hong Sang-soo with Isabel Huppert, Disobedience with Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams as women whose attraction to each other is complicated by the Orthodox Jewish community they belong to. It's directed by Sebastian Lelio, who made the Oscar-winning Best Foreign Language Film, A Fantastic Woman, and RBG, the documentary about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In wide release, Anon. It's on Netflix. It's the latest from Andrew Nichol, who gave us Gattaca and Lord of War. Bad Samaritan, a pair of burglars stumble upon a woman being held captive in a home they intended to rob. Okay. Overboard, a spoiled wealthy yacht owner is thrown overboard and becomes the target of revenge from his mistreated employee. Yes, it's a remake of the 1987 comedy. This one stars Anna Faris. That one starred Goldie Hawn and Kurt, Kurt Russell. Russell. I watched that movie a thousand times. <laughs> I think when my I was a sisters kid. did too. I loved Overboard. Missed it myself. Yeah, probably going to miss this one. Tully is out. A mother of three is gifted 
Gifted Night Nanny by her brother. It's from Jason Reitman and Diablo Cody, Charlize Theron, and Mackenzie Davis Star. So parenting is going to be the theme next week as we talk about Tully and do our top five too real parenting moments in movies. And I think we're going to hear about all our flaws as parents. In oh, my, mine are just going to be all the times I've got it right. Actually, I love it. It's actually a top one list. <laughs> Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach new listeners. Our music this week is by Lucy Dacus. It comes from the album Historian. More information is at lucydacus.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.